Good afternoon, and welcome to Midday Magazine for Monday, November 14th. I'm Julie Hersey. The Petersburg Borough Assembly met last week on Monday at noon, and during that meeting, they are also scheduled a, a special executive session closed to the public, which took place on Friday. Rachel Cassandra has more. The Petersburg Borough Assembly considered a resolution to change assembly meeting times. It proposed moving all meeting times to 6 p.m. in the evenings instead of alternating noon and evening meeting times. Three residents spoke in support of the resolution. Dana Tinas called in to comment. For the past several years, the Borough Assembly has met alternately at 6 in the evening or 12 in the afternoon. Unless a person really has their finger on the pulse of local politics, that's hard to keep track of. It is particularly a problem for people who are not retired, who still have day jobs. Gloria Ann Wallen testified in person to support evening meetings and suggested meetings be moved to 7 p.m. instead of 6. Just because for those of us that are in the working public, it's really hard for us to, as well as department heads, to get home, get our kids situated, get a babysitter that isn't in a sport um, uh, there and um, able to attend our kids to be here for the meeting. So I don't know where, why six o'clock is now the new norm for most meetings, but it uh, really isn't convenient for people with children. Assemblymember Donna Marsh proposed an amendment to the resolution so that meeting times would be moved to 7, but that amendment failed. The Assembly received one letter against the resolution and one supporting. They also received an unofficial petition with 72 signatures in support. Assemblymember Bob Lynn spoke at great length against changing the meeting times and reminded the Assembly of its history considering this issue. He said the alternating times allow a wider variety of participation. Having noon and night meetings assures that all residents have an opportunity to be heard regardless of how they chose to participate. The ways of participating vary. He noticed that those comments in favor of only having evening meeting times said that the borough should not favor the minority at the expense of the majority. Lynn said this conflicted with the aims of the borough when they originally considered accessibility. One common value that emerged, and I want to I want to emphasize this, was to assure that everyone in the borough had an equal chance to participate regardless of whether they were in the majority or the minority. Ultimately, the resolution to change meeting times to evenings failed with a four to three vote. In other assembly business, assembly member Bob Lynn was appointed as vice mayor. Amber Burrell will join the Parks and Recreation Advisory Board, and Scott Roberge will fill the vacant seat on the Harbors and Ports Advisory Board. The Assembly passed two resolutions for the third and final time. Moving forward, properties seized by the borough due to tax foreclosure will be sold instead of held for public use, and the Assembly approved the adjustment to next year's fiscal year budget for known changes. The Assembly postponed making a decision on whether to appoint an outside law firm to represent the borough in a lawsuit. The lawsuit relates to a public records request. It was filed against the borough and clerk Deborah Thompson by Dan Koenigs. The firm suggested by the borough's insurance is Germain, Dunnigan, and Owens of Anchorage. The Assembly chose to move that discussion to a special closed meeting that took place on Friday at 5 p.m. so they could privately consult the borough's in-house lawyer. After that special meeting, the Assembly passed the resolution to appoint the law firm as special legal counsel for the lawsuit. 
Reporting in Petersburg, I'm Rachel Cassandra. The Village Corporation in Yakutat has been ordered by the state to change the way it runs shareholder elections. As Coast Alaska's Angela Denning reports, this comes after two years of conflict over logging in the southeast Alaska community, with a corporation on one side and many shareholders on the other. The state of Alaska fined Yakutat's Village Corporation Yaktat Kwan $500 for violating election requirements that mandate annual financial information must be provided to shareholders. The Division of Banking and Securities has ordered the Village Corporation to release its 2021 financial information. The division also voided the proxy votes from the last election. A few years ago, Yaktat Kwan had a dream to bring money to its shareholders. They would log their land sell the timber, and use the equipment to start up new business ventures, like clearing land for homes. So, the board of directors created the company Yak Timber. Sherry Jensen is the corporation's CEO. For us, it's also about trying to sustain this community for the future of what's going to be coming our way here very soon, uh, which is that There won't be affordable land. There won't be homes available for our shareholders. Yaktat Kwan officials haven't spoken publicly until now. But Jensen says she wants to clear the air. The Village Corporation was created in the 70s, like others around the state, through the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. It's a for-profit business charged with making money on its land resources to pay dividends to shareholders. Logging ventures in Southeast are uncommon these days. Other Alaska Native corporations have moved to carbon credits as a way to make money off their forests. Companies here or in other states pay the corporations to keep their trees intact. The intent is to offset some of the greenhouse gases the purchasing company emits. Jensen says Yakutat's corporation decided against carbon credits because their land would be tied up for decades and logging would be more profitable. We felt that the timber was a renewable resource that would still allow, in 110 years, you would have two generations of growth. And we just felt that the value in that was way higher than what you would get for carbon credits. But many shareholders disagreed. The pushback was so strong that Yak Timber announced in October that it would dissolve. At the very get-go, many of the shareholders said, We don't want logging industry in Yakutat. Coast Alaska spoke with several shareholders who didn't want to go on record. This one didn't want to be identified for fear of legal repercussions. Some shareholders have been named in a defamation lawsuit by the CEO of the logging company. Shareholders who are opposed to logging are part of a watchdog group called Defend Yakutat. The group formed in 2020 as a way to share information they thought the corporation was withholding. They don't support logging as an economic future. I think people use Yakutat to get away. Um, And seeing the clear cut and seeing the destruction around town, it's just not good for ecotourism. It's not good for the independent traveler that wants to be lost in the wilderness that is Yakutat. But it goes deeper than aesthetics. Shareholders say it's about community health and teaching the youth place-based learning. It's important for our kids in the community to go out into the old growth forests and touch the trees that our ancestors did, walk between trees that our ancestors did, follow the game paths that our ancestors did.
Martha Malott is a shareholder descendant in the process of getting her own shares. She says she's not surprised the state investigated Yak Tak Kwan. Because they are doing business illegally by not providing financials and not providing information to the shareholders, but also not following the annual meeting guidelines. The state's order demands Yak Tak Kwan's financial information be released and the proxy votes be voided. Malad and others have accused the corporation of using the state's order as an excuse to postpone another annual meeting and avoid releasing financial information. Yak Tak Kwan postponed last year's meeting from November until April, but in April there was no quorum. It's likely that the makeup of the board would change with another election, says Malat. I think that they are stalling and trying to find excuses. But CEO Jensen says they postponed the 2021 meeting because of Defend Yakutat. The misinformation was piling up. The corporation postponed its annual meeting and held what it called informational meetings in Juneau, Anchorage, and the village. Because of all the... um misinformation out there that it caused us to postpone it so that we could get the right information out. Now, Jensen would like to focus on healing. She says she thinks that's possible when logging is no longer in the picture. Yak Timber plans to sell all of its logging assets in Seattle. Some shareholders are skeptical the profits will pay off the millions the company owes in loans. A Ketchikan contractor filed a lien in October against Yak Timber for $32,000. Jensen says the corporation isn't worried about the lien and will be able to pay off all its loans. She says they're appealing the state's order. She says the outcome of that appeal will determine the corporation's next move. In Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. Biologists say wolves on Prince of Wales Island have a high level of inbreeding. Although it's not an emergency, it's something that game managers are keeping their eyes on. Reagan Miller has more from Ketchikan. It's rare for a wolf to find its way to Prince of Wales Island and breed with a member of the local population. About one new arrival is expected every five years, which equals roughly one generation of wolves. That's according to a 2019 study by researchers at the University of Montana. Tom Schumacher is the regional supervisor for the game area that includes Prince of Wales Island. He mentioned the study at a recent meeting with local trappers. It's very rare for wolves from outside Unit 2 to immigrate and join the breeding population in Unit 2. Um, and you can actually calculate a rate from genetics. Um, and the rate that the student calculated was about one individual per, per wolf generation, the wolf generation being four to five years. So that means every four to five years, one individual from outside Unit 2 moves into Unit 2 and breeds with the other wolves here and produces offspring. By itself, inbreeding in wolves isn't a huge problem. Schumacher says it's expected on an island. The problem is what happens when it gets out of control, something called inbreeding depression. That could translate to things like infertility or deformities. A wolf pack in Michigan at the Isle Royale National Park is suffering from inbreeding depression. And according to the study of the Prince of Wales Island wolves, the two packs share about the same level of inbreeding. When closely related animals breed together, um, there's a greater likelihood of passing on unfavorable traits because both the mother and the father have those traits. Um, and if both parents have them, they're more likely to be expressed in the offspring. Schumacher says biologists have seen this happen elsewhere, and the study out of Montana is a red flag for Prince of Wales Island. But it isn't time to sound the alarm yet. It's not an emergency, but it, is a, it raises a flag and it says, you know, you really need to look at this. And uh, we currently have a much larger data set to look at 
That's because as of last fall, the state's Department of Fish and Game estimated that there are around 268 wolves on the island. That's higher than the target population of somewhere between 150 and 200 animals. There are other packs in the region that stick together, too. Packs around the units containing Ketchikan, Petersburg, and Kupernoff Island are also highly inbred. Wolves that dominate the area around the Stikin River, the Upper Lynn Canal, and Glacier Bay also have close connections. But they're less inbred. They appear to be better connected to wolves outside the region. For now, management of the wolves will remain the same. The wolf harvest for Prince of Wales Island starts on November 15th and will last 31 days. In Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game released its preliminary statewide summary for the year last Thursday. The harvests for all five salmon species in all fisheries equal just over $720 million. That's nearly $77 million more than last year and over $425 million more than two years ago. 2020 saw a low of roughly $295 million, one of the worst on record. Sockeye salmon made up approximately 66% of the state's total value this year. Most of that is due to the record-breaking Bristol Bay fishery at nearly 70 million fish. Chum and pink salmon were worth nearly the same. They contributed 15 and 14% of the state's total value, respectively. King salmon made up 3% of the statewide value. Even with far less fish harvested than the other species, kings averaged over $60 per fish. Coho salmon made up approximately 2% of the statewide value. This year's harvest of nearly 161 million salmon is close to the long-term average over the last three and a half decades. It's the largest even-year harvest since 2010. Four pounds harvested, however, it's a little below the average. When the overall yearly value is adjusted for inflation, it ends up being about the 24th lowest fishery in the last 47 years. The state's salmon summary is just an educated guess. The final value of the year's fisheries will not be known until next year after all the fisheries are closed out, meaning the seafood processors, buyers, and direct marketers report what they paid to the fishermen. That wraps up the news portion for Midday Magazine for this Monday, the 14th of November. Coming up next, we will have a look at the local and marine weather forecast.